0: Please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. We continue our verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter study of the Gospel according to Mark. And while you're turning to Mark chapter 10, I'd like to remind you of how things started off back in Mark chapter 1, a number of months ago, when we began the study of the Gospel. We found that when Jesus began his public ministry, Jesus was saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Here's the heart of the matter. Here's the summary of the teaching of Jesus Christ when the Word of God walked on the earth. What was his message? His message was the kingdom of God is near. And so we need to know what is the kingdom of God. He said, Repent and believe in the gospel. So we need to know what it means to repent and believe. And we need to know what is the gospel. Well, we have a passage here in Mark chapter 10 that contains two incidents in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ that will give us great insight into understanding what Jesus meant by repent and believe in the gospel. How does someone inherit eternal life? How does someone enter the kingdom of God? Well, it is through repentance and faith. But what does that look like? What does that mean? Well, we're going to find out about that today in Romans 10, verses 13 through 31. Our title for these verses is, Leaving It All Behind. Leaving It All Behind. Very interesting. As you look in Mark chapter 10, you'll notice that verse 17, which contains the incident that is known as Jesus' interview with the rich young man, that verse 17 starts off with the question, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit... Eternal life. And then you come down to verse 30, the end of this section, and you see eternal life appears again at the end of that verse. In the age to come, eternal life. When we're talking about the kingdom of God, when we're talking about eternal life, these go hand in hand. In order to enter the kingdom of God, you must have eternal life. The eternal life that God gives is the life that will cause us to live forever in God's coming kingdom. And in fact, this section, starting in verse 13, going down to verse 31, contains five out of the 14 uses of that phrase, the kingdom of God, in Mark's gospel. So this is the most dense teaching on the kingdom of God in Mark's gospel, just by use of the phrase. It's a repeated idea, and it's connected with that idea of eternal life. So as we look at these stories... About eternal life and entering the kingdom of God, we're going to be surprised. We're going to be shocked. There's going to be things in here that are going to challenge us and our misconceptions about eternal life and entering the kingdom of God. It's not easy to unlearn what we have spent a lifetime ingraining in ourselves, and even in our Christian subculture. We have to unlearn many of the values that have seeped in from the worldly society around us. Values about achievement, values about identity, values about status. Jesus is going to upend what the world thinks and we who live in the world think. We'll find that the disciples were very worldly in their thinking. And we'll probably find that we also have remnants of worldly thinking within ourselves. The disciples, the twelve, they thought so differently than Jesus on so many crucial matters. And we find that again in this text. We are in a section in the Gospel of Mark on discipleship. We are disciples. And we must humble ourselves to unlearn the falsehoods that we have ingrained within us and to truly develop the mind of Christ. That's what the gospel is given to us for. That's what the words of Jesus Christ are here for, is to retrain our thinking so that we are not conformed to this world, but we are transformed by the renewal of our minds. May God do that work through the words of Jesus Christ among us. I'd like to begin by reading verses 13 through 16. And you see the outline is just in two parts. We have verses 13 and 16, although it's a short section, a very important section. And all three of the Synoptic Gospels contain this account. And all three of the Synoptic Gospels link it with what comes afterwards. So the teaching in verses 13 through 16 and what Jesus follows up with verses 17 through 31 are two sides of the same coin. This is going to powerfully illustrate from two different angles the same essential truth. Let's read verses 13 through 16. laying his hands on them. Here we have a parallel teaching to what Jesus has taught in the previous chapter. If you go back to chapter 9, verses 36 and 37, as the disciples argued amongst themselves about which one of them was going to be the greatest in Christ's coming kingdom, he brings a child and sets that child down in the midst of them. You see that in verse 36. And taking him in his arms, he said to the twelve, Whoever receives one such child in my name, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. Now we don't know how long exactly it is between what he says here in chapter 9, verses 36 and 37, and what we have here in chapter 10, verse 13, where the disciples are rebuking parents for bringing children to Jesus. They're doing the exact opposite of what he has told them to do. He's just told them, receive a child. That when you receive children, you are receiving me and receiving the father. He's taught them to turn upside down their understanding of what makes someone important, what gives someone status, what makes for greatness in God's eyes. And they have not learned the lesson. Gone in one ear, out the other. You as parents, you know how this works with children. You have to exercise great patience in instruction because we are hard-headed, hard-hearted people and we don't receive instruction well. We don't learn quickly. And so Jesus is indignant. This is the only time in any of the four Gospels that this particular word, indignant, is used for the Lord Jesus Christ. I looked it up in the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. It means feeling or showing anger because of something unjust or unworthy. The disciples are acting in an unjust or an unworthy manner in trying to shoo the children away from bothering the Lord Jesus Christ, who has much more important adult matters to attend to than blessing children. Jesus' words here is a second lesson. That is intended to retrain the disciples in their evaluation of what is important, or more particularly, who is important. Jesus says, Let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. To such belongs the kingdom of God. What does that mean? Why does the kingdom of God belong to children or those who are like children? He follows it up with a very profound statement. He says, truly I say to you. And whenever you hear the Lord Jesus Christ say, truly I say to you, this is something you really need to listen to. This is something you need to stop and ponder. And Jesus said, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. In the Greek there, the negation is doubled. So you've got a double negative, which is allowed in Greek. You don't do that in English, but it's doubled for emphasis. There's no other way to enter the kingdom of God than receiving it as a child receives. Now, in order for us to really understand this lesson, I'd like to ask help from the children in our congregation. So if you are 12 or under, would you come up onto the stage with me for a moment? Kids, come on up. 12 and under, I want kids up here on the stage. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking to all of you grown-ups out there today. And he says that you've got to become like one of these children if you are going to enter the kingdom of God. Now, what is it about these children that Jesus Christ is asking you to become like? Is he asking you to become adorable and cute? No, you don't have to be adorable and cute to enter the kingdom. There's nothing about that in scripture anywhere. That can't be what he's talking about. Is he asking you to be innocent? Well, no. There's none innocent. You can't be innocent. And even these children on the stage are not innocent, as their parents well know. Is he asking you to be naive? Well, the scripture says we are not to be simple-minded. We are supposed to grow in wisdom. And there's no way that just being young and naive is going to get you to come into the kingdom of God. You see, it's not what these children are that you have to become like. But what we're going to learn this morning is it's what these children are not. And what are these children not? Well, they're not self-sufficient. They've never paid the electric bill in their lives. They've never gone to the grocery store and paid for a week's worth of groceries. They haven't worked and supported a family. These children are dependent upon you. And that attitude of dependence is what God says you must have if you are going to inherit eternal life. Until you recognize that you do not have the resources, you do not have the power, you do not have the status in order to gain or earn entrance into the kingdom of God, you will never at all enter it. Children, thank you for coming up on the stage and helping us to understand this. You can go back down to your parents. The kingdom of God is not received through any virtue or any achievement. It is not given to those who are, it is given to those who are not. This spirit of receptivity, this spirit of dependence, this spirit of trustfulness is what we find in the hearts of children because their whole life depends upon the gifts of others. And so, your eternal life does not depend upon you, your accomplishments, your abilities, your resources, your strength, but it depends upon your Father. Your Father is the one who is going to get you into the kingdom. And if you don't receive it like a child from your father's hand, you will never, ever enter it. That's the message here in verses 13 through 16. There's a great verse in Proverbs that I think really helps to think through this. I only put up half of the verse. You can look up Proverbs 17, verse 6 to get the rest of it. But I want us to think about how the glory of children is their fathers. The children, when they go out on the playground, sometimes they'll talk about, well, well, my dad... He works over here and my dad's got an important job and my dad is a big person and, and my dad is great and my dad can throw a football further than your dad. And children, they'll boast about their fathers because they're hoping to be able to grow up and be like their father and, and a lot of their glory they haven't achieved yet. Their glory is something that they get from being children of their fathers. Well, that's the way it is for Christians. We're not here saying, well, I'm a big man. I've accomplished a lot. I mean, look at my resume. And look at what I've been able to build. Look at how many people are following me. That's not what Christians do. Christians say, look at the Father. Look at my dad. He's the big man. He's the one that we're making a big deal about. He's the one that we're glorifying. He's the one that we honor. He's the one that we depend upon. That's the spirit of the child that Jesus is looking for among us. That brings us then to verses 17 through 31. And remember, these two stories, they go together in all three Gospels, one right after the other. These are connected. Let's read what Mark says next, starting in verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, As we come to this, we see the contrast between the children who had nothing and the man who has everything. The children who have nothing are going to inherit the kingdom. But the man who has everything is lacking. He's lacking something. We know this story as the story of the rich young ruler because Luke tells us that he was a ruler and Matthew tells us that he was rich. But Mark doesn't say anything about him. He's just a certain someone. Until we come to the rub in verse 22, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And then the focus becomes on the difficulty of the rich being saved. But when the story starts off, it's just about a man coming to Jesus asking a key question. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The right question. He's concerned about eternal life. He's concerned about entrance into the kingdom of God in the age to come. And he's going to the right person. And he's not just going, but he's running with urgency. And he's humble. He falls down at the feet of Jesus to ask this pressing question, the question of his heart, the question of his soul. You have to admire this man, but he didn't have eternal life, and he knew it. He sensed, I've got everything, but I don't have eternal life, and he wanted it. And so Jesus doesn't answer the question the way that I would answer the question, or the way that I would expect most Christians to answer the question. I was trained in evangelism explosion when I was in high school, and and I learned that when somebody comes and asks you the question of, how do I get saved? How do I get forgiveness of sins? How do I get eternal life? Well, I say repent and believe in the gospel, just like Jesus did in Mark chapter 1, as I mentioned earlier. There's another passage that's similar to this in Acts chapter 16, where the apostle Paul and his companions are in jail, They've been beat up when they're in Philippi and thrown into the inner prison in the stocks. And they're singing songs while they are in prison of praise to God. And then there's an earthquake which breaks the jail cell doors. And the prisoners all stay because Paul tells them to stay. And they all respect him because he's got the Spirit of God upon him. And they can sense it. The jailer comes in and he sees that Paul and the other prisoners are all still there when they could have escaped. And, And he falls down before paul and asks him and says sir what must i do to be saved again the same question and paul he answered the way that i was trained to answer it he said believe in the lord jesus and you will be saved you and your household now why does jesus answer this rich young man differently than the way paul answered the philippian jailer that's a good question isn't it let's see if we can figure that out as we work through this. Notice Jesus' first response. Before he answers the question, Jesus takes issue with the title that he has been addressed by. This is interesting. So notice that in verse 17, the man had addressed Jesus as good teacher. This is somewhat unusual. There's no place else in the gospel records where Jesus is addressed as good teacher. He's always addressed as teacher, rabbi, but not with the appellation of good connected with it. And if you go back and do research, from what I've read, I haven't done the research myself, this would be very rare, or maybe not even found at all, among the Jewish literature of the first century, that they didn't use good rabbi to refer to teachers. So this appears to be an unusually flattering form of address. And you can't say that the man was insincere, or that he was using flattery, but it's just inappropriate, and Jesus points out that it's inappropriate. He says, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So not only was it possibly inappropriate in their culture, but also Jesus takes offense at this. And you have to say, well, why? Why does Jesus take offense at this? Because we know that Jesus is God and that Jesus shares in God's goodness. And so there's no problem with actually calling Jesus good teacher. It's actually the most appropriate thing to say to Jesus is to call him good teacher, for he is the only one that ever walked the face of the earth who is in fact good. But Jesus doesn't allow himself to be called good here, most likely because this man didn't know who Jesus was. And Jesus was cognizant, he was aware that this man was only calling him good because he did not understand the goodness of God. You see, this is a major problem with humanity in general, and I think we can learn from Jesus on this point. One of the key evangelism methods that I admire and would recommend to you if you're looking for evangelism training is called the Way of the Master. The Way of the Master is largely based upon this text and all three synoptics, Mark, Matthew, and Luke this incident of Jesus' conversation with the rich young man. Because what Jesus is doing here with the rich young man is very much what often needs to be done in our personal evangelism in the time and place where we live. Because we who are living in a humanistic society are also confused about what is good and what is goodness. That's why the way of the master begins the conversation, the gospel conversation, with the question, are you a good person? Are you a good person? And what do you think 99.5% of all the people that you go out and ask, are you a good person, are going to say to that question? They say, yes, I'm a pretty good person. Now, very often they'll say, I'm a pretty good person, right? Because what they're revealing is, is that they don't view goodness as a yes or no proposition. They reveal it as a, well, compared to most people, I'm better than. It's a comparative thing. It's a relative term, not an absolute term. And what God and Jesus want us to understand is that goodness is not a relative term. Goodness is an absolute term when we're talking about moral goodness you are either good or you are not. And here's the rub, you are not. That's something that people don't understand. People who are raised in a humanist society think that people are good. And as long as you treat your neighbor pretty well, then you are good enough to get along in society. Because the standard is not God, the standard is society. Do people think I'm good? Do my neighbors think I'm a good neighbor? Does my wife think I'm a good husband? Do my kids think I'm a good dad? Does my church think I'm a good pastor? Does my boss think I'm a good worker? Then I'm good. And our standard is what do people think of me, or even more narcissistically, what do I think of myself, as our standard of goodness. That's not the standard. Jesus is correcting this man from the very beginning on a very essential idea. He's not going to be able to understand what he must do to inherit eternal life until he recognizes that God alone is good and that we human beings are not. So don't read this as if Jesus is denying his own sinlessness or his own goodness. He's not. He's correcting this man's misunderstanding of humanity. This man would look at some people as being bad people, other people as being good people, himself included, And that Jesus, being one of the best people around. And that's why he's come to him with this question. And he wants to be taught by this good man, but he doesn't know who he's talking to, and he doesn't know himself either. So Jesus then starts where the man is. He wants to know what he can do to inherit eternal life. You know what the biblical answer to that question is? Exactly what Jesus says. The biblical answer is, keep God's commandments. That's what the law of Moses said. If you do it, you will live. If You want to have eternal life? Then keep God's commandments. So he answers the question in accordance with God's word. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And so he says, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. You know what these are? These are the Ten Commandments. Commandment number five comes last because it's a positive statement, but all the negative statements come first, and that's six, seven, eight, and nine in order. And then the one that is unusual here that Mark includes that the others don't is where it says do not defraud. Most likely do not defraud is a substitute for the tenth commandment, which is do not covet. So if you have a covetous heart, then you're going to engage in fraud. So what we have here is the second table of the law, in essence. And the second table of the law has to do with our horizontal relationships, man's relationships with his neighbor. These are the things you're supposed to do. You're supposed to honor marriage. You're supposed to honor your parents. You're supposed to honor private property. You're supposed to be content with what you have. These are God's commandments that regulate our conduct with one another. We're not supposed to lie against someone. And the man, notice his response, He says, I've done that, and I still feel like I'm lacking something. All these things I have kept from my youth. I've I've never committed adultery. I've never committed murder. I've been a good son to my parents and honored them. I've been keeping God's commandments. But what else is there? What else am I supposed to do? Now, we shouldn't look at the young man as if he was hypocritical, not like he's trying to just put on a show. He really thinks that he's kept God's commandments In this regard. He's sincere even if he is a little naive. And so Jesus, he looks at him in verse 21 and he loves him. This is the word agape. It is that self-sacrificing love that seeks the best for others even at the expense of oneself. And Jesus has this kind of love for this young man. It's the same kind of love that he had for Peter when he asked Peter to come and follow. And the invitation to come and follow Jesus is a sincere, real invitation. This is the only place in the Gospels where Jesus calls someone to follow him, and he doesn't. I wonder if he does at a later time. You wonder if he came back, if he realized his mistake and did what Jesus said, but we never have any record of that, and so I think we're left to assume that he did not. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now, when Jesus looked at him and loved him, notice what he gave. He gave him a twofold command. He told him, You lack one thing. This is ironic, because this man has everything, but he's lacking something. And what he's lacking is exactly what the children have empty hands. That's what he's lacking. The children have empty hands. They can receive. God can give a gift to the child, but he can't give a gift to this man because this man does not have empty hands to receive it. The one thing that he is lacking is emptiness. The one thing that he is lacking is helplessness. The one thing that he is lacking is dependence on God. Notice how he came with the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he was confident that Jesus would tell him something that he would be capable of doing and then he could be confident that he had eternal life. Exactly wrong. There is nothing that you can do to have eternal life. But it's puzzling, Jesus' answer. You know, I'm I'm explaining the answer, but if you just look at the answer by itself, it's kind of confusing. Because Jesus said, Go, sell all that you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. And this sounds like Jesus is preaching a poverty gospel. That the only way to enter the kingdom of God is to dispossess yourself of all of your possessions, and only by giving to the poor can you be worthy of inheriting the kingdom. Well, you can read it that way. But that would be in contradistinction to everything else that is in the Bible, which teaches us that you can't work your way to heaven by good deeds. You can't work your way to heaven by charity. Giving money to the poor is not going to wipe out your sins and give you eternal life. And so why does Jesus command this? And what does this mean for you? Jesus looked at him and loved him and told him what he did not want to hear. Proverbs 27, 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. A friend will hurt you. A friend will tell you what you don't want to hear. An enemy will butter you up with all kinds of kisses. Learn to know the difference between a friend and an enemy. Don't be a fool and fall for the flattery. But listen to those who care enough about you to wound your heart and tell you when you are wrong. And here, Jesus, he looked at the man. That doesn't just mean he was looking in his directions. It means he saw him. It means he understood him. He knew that this man had great possessions. He knew that what this man possessed had possessed him, which is so often the case. Be careful. The more you own, the less free you are. The more you own, the more what you have owns you. And you have to stop and ask yourself, who owns you? What's your price? You've heard it said, every man has a price. Do you have a price? What do you have that is precious to you, that if it was threatened to be taken away from you, you would stop following God? You would disobey God's commandments. You would abandon your Christianity in order to hold on to God your precious life? Jesus' response is not the most seeker-friendly of responses. Rich young man comes to church. He asks pastor, what do I do to get saved? Well, join the church. Give a lot of money to the church. That's what is typical among false churches and false gospels because they are marketing a gospel that is selling adding heaven to what people already have you got a good life you got a good wife you got a good home you got a good job you can keep all that and all you got to do is pray the sinner's prayer join our church you'll go to the kingdom that gospel sells well there's a real market for such a gospel but jesus gospel was not that jesus gospel was not easy it wasn't cheap grace Jesus' call was a costly call. When Jesus calls a man to follow him, he bids him to come and die. Have you heard the call of Jesus? Has he called you to die for him? To follow him at the cost of your own life? And have you responded to that call? If you have not, you do not know God. You do not have eternal life. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is not my tradition. This is not my interpretation. This is the black and white words of Jesus on the page. Come back to a previous chapter, Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. What Jesus is doing for this rich young man is he is applying the truth that he's already stated repeatedly through the gospel one place very clearly that I want you to see here back in Mark chapter 8, verses 34 to 38. This is a specific application to this particular man about the general principle that he is preaching in Mark eight thirty four to 38 So let's read it again. It says this, Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, just like he asked this young man, follow me. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What did it mean for the rich young man to deny himself and to take up his cross? It meant sell everything you have and give it to the poor for whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul for what can a man give in return for his soul for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with his holy angels he looked at the man he loved him And he gave him the choice. You can choose your life that you have now or you can choose eternal life, but you can't have both. You can choose your life that you have now or you can choose eternal life, but you can't have both. Make your choice. That's exactly what Jesus was saying here. You want to follow Jesus? Die. Why? Why can't you have both? Peter found out. Paul found out. You can't have both. It cost Paul everything to become a follower of Jesus Christ. And if you're not willing to make that commitment at the beginning, then don't start down that road because you're just going to fail. Satan will find your price and he will buy you back from following Jesus Christ. And so until you have given up everything and you've left everything behind, you are not following Christ. The gospel is subtraction not addition. You're not adding eternal life to everything you have. You're taking away what you have. He who loses his life, that's the one who will save it. Come also to Mark chapter 9, verses 43 to 48. Mark 9, 43 to 48 says this. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. What's precious to you? Your hand? Your foot? your eye, your reputation, your wealth, your inheritance, your family? What's your price? If you're tortured for Christ, will you deny him. And say, just let me go back home. Just let me go back to my family. I don't want to be a Christian anymore. Jesus said, as recorded by the Gospel of John, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. I want you to see a passage in Matthew, Matthew chapter 13. You know it, but it's good to be reminded. Connect the dots here between what Jesus is saying. Matthew chapter 13, the short two verses about the pearl of great price. How appropriate this is for understanding why Jesus told this rich young man to sell everything, to give it to the poor, and to come follow him. Matthew 13, verse 45, Jesus said, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. You want eternal life? It's going to cost you everything. It's going to cost you everything. You pick up your cross every day and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the only way. There's no other way. What this passage reveals to us, is not a two-step program with salvation. First step is no commitment, totally free, cheap grace. All you have to do is say, Jesus is Lord, Jesus rose from the dead, I got forgiveness of sins, I'm going to heaven, eternal life is mine. And then if you want to, if you're really serious about this whole Christian thing, you can take step number two, where you decide to become a disciple. Being a disciple is very costly, so you might not want to do that. Maybe it's better for you, you know, you normal Christians, just to have the sinner's prayer and go to heaven. You don't have to worry about this cutting out your eye and cutting off your hand stuff, selling all that you possess. You know, that's just for super spiritual disciples, not for us common forgiven sinners. There's no two steps. The question was not, what do I do in order to be a disciple? The question was, what do I do? to get eternal life. And if you don't do what Jesus says, you don't have eternal life. Don't let any preacher out there deceive you. It doesn't matter what Christians say, it matters what Christ says. And Christ says, if you don't die to yourself, you're not going to inherit the kingdom. Unless the kingdom of heaven is worth more to you than everything you own, you don't understand the value of eternal life in the kingdom of heaven. And if you don't understand the value of it, you can't let go of what you're holding on to to receive it like a child. Luke focuses on poverty a lot. I think it's good for us to to sit in this for a little while, not to to let ourselves off the hook too quickly and say, well, that was just that young man that had to sell everything. God doesn't expect me to sell everything and give to the poor. I mean, come on. You know what the Beatitude says in Luke chapter 6? Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. He doesn't say poor in spirit. He just says poor. Blessed are you poor. Think about that. Again, in Luke, he says, Luke sixteen thirteen says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot. He doesn't say it's hard. Maybe you can negotiate it if you're really smart. You cannot serve God and mammon. If money, if wealth is telling you what to do and you make your decisions on life based upon what is going to preserve your wealth, what is going to increase your wealth, you are not a Christian. You do not serve God. You serve wealth. Jesus is clear. And so, Come back to Mark chapter 10. The man goes away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus, here's where we transition now, from the rich young man, he's gone, back to the disciples. And this is for us. You are a disciple. Jesus is looking around at us this morning with the same eyes, with the same penetrating gaze, with the same knowledge. He looks around and he's wondering, how are you responding to this? Are you hearing? Are you seeing? Are you understanding? And he wants his disciples to see, hear, and understand. And so he said to his disciples how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And this, this amazed them. They were floored because they thought like the world. They thought that eternal life was something that you can achieve. And who has more resources to achieve something than the rich? You know, the rich can devote themselves to studying the Bible. The rich can take time off. The rich have money to give to the poor. The the rich have all the resources that they can do things with. Money is power. And if a rich person uses his power for good, well then, he's in the best position to be able to attain eternal life. You see the logic? You see the reasoning here? If eternal life is something that can be achieved, something that we can do, well, then the rich are in the best position to do it because they got the most ability to do. That's what money is. It's ability to do. Jesus said, no. Wealth is not an asset when it comes to eternal life. It's a liability. Wealth is not an asset when it comes to eternal life. It is a liability. You should not envy the rich for the power that they have to do. You should pity the rich. This was made clear to me when I traveled to Nicaragua on our missions trip with Luke Avery and Samantha and Edwin years ago. And in Nicaragua, you see life as it has been and life as it normally is in the world a very small middle class, a few really, really, really rich people, and a whole lot of poor. That's Nicaragua. And where do you find faith? Where do you find love for God? Where do you find trust and dependence upon God? Well, it's not among the rich. I didn't meet one rich person in Nicaragua who loved the Lord Jesus Christ. I found it among the poor. Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you children, because you have nothing. And you recognize you have nothing. And that's how eternal life comes. It comes to those who have nothing who do not have power, who cannot achieve, who cannot attain. The rich young man thought, if anybody can do it, I can do it. Whatever Jesus tells me to do, I got the time, I got the money, I got the motivation, I can do it. And he went away sad because Jesus made it clear, you can't do it. We might have to ask ourselves the question, are we rich? How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Sometimes I think Americans are somewhat misguided on this subject, and I'd like to give you some perspective. Your standard of living is not the same thing as your wealth. i got a financial guy or two here with me this morning, am I right? Your standard of living is not the same thing as your wealth. Your net worth is your wealth. What is your net worth? Well, it's the property that you own, the money that you've got saved up in your retirement accounts, that you've got invested... That's your net worth, minus your liabilities. So you take your assets and your liabilities, you put those together, and whatever is left, that's your net worth. Now, what do you think? Do you think most Americans are wealthy? Do they have a a high net worth? No, most Americans are not wealthy. You know what the average household net worth is in America? Well, not average, median. Median is a better number in this case than the average. The median net worth of the American household it is 121,000, 121,000. That's not a lot. It's something. It's probably more than, you know, most people in Nicaragua, I'll give you that. that's not a lot. Most people don't get to that median net worth until they're in their late 40s. So if you look around and you see young people, their net worth might be in the negatives, because they've got student loan debt, they've got house debt, they've got car debt. They're not wealthy. They might be living a very high standard of living, but that's not the same thing as being wealthy. This man was wealthy. This man was the type of man in Nicaragua who had the estate. He had the huge house on the little island with the boat outside. That was this man. So don't necessarily equate everything that says the scriptures about the rich with the average American. And When we're talking about the rich, we're talking about the rich and the powerful. We're talking about the people who have money stayed up so that they don't have to work again if they don't want to. That's rich. You might not be in that situation. But we still have to ask ourselves, even with the little that I do have, even with my 121000 of net worth, is that my price? If I had to lose my house to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, would I do it? If I had to lose my retirement, my pension, my savings, my job, my status, respect in the community, what's my price to stop following Jesus Christ? Well, this man had a price. He had more, and so he had more to lose. And if you have more to lose, it's harder to give it up. That's why wealth is a liability. The more you have, the more you have to lose. And so, children, be thankful you don't have anything you can make the decision right now to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't have to achieve it. You just have to receive it. But then you'll have to keep making that choice as you get older. You'll have to decide, am I going to follow Christ or am I going to pursue my life now? If you love your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life, for Christ's sake, you will attain it. So let's finish up what Jesus says here to his disciples. He says, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus didn't back down. He doubles down and he says, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. All the preachers trying to make it so easy. Let's make it so easy for people to get eternal life. Is that what Christ did? Good intentions have unintended consequences. You might want to make it easy, but what you're not doing is making disciples, which is our mission. That's our mission. Jesus makes it difficult to enter the kingdom. In fact, so difficult that it's impossible. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, you might have heard That there's not a literal meaning here with the eye of the needle and the camel going through it, but that there was a door, a small door in the gates of Jerusalem that they called the eye of the needle. And so the camels went through the big door. And for to get a camel through the small door would be very difficult, but it's possible. No, 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 no. That interpretation was made up hundreds of years later. There's no historical documentation that shows that there was a little door or that it was called the eye of the needle. Now, Jesus here means this literally. We're talking about a literal camel going through a literal eye of a needle. And what is that? That's impossible. That's impossible. Not just difficult. He's doubling down and he's telling them it's impossible. And that's why in verse 26, they were exceedingly astonished. They were dumbstruck. Their jaw was literally hanging open. They couldn't believe that Jesus was saying this. They were exceedingly astonished. That's strong terminology. And they began to talk amongst themselves, who can be saved? Finally, the right question. they finally gotten to the right question. If salvation was something that you could do, then the more capable, the more virtuous, the more rich, the more wise you were, the better chance you would have of doing it. But no matter how rich, no matter how wise, no matter how capable, no matter how strong, no matter how healthy, no matter how good you are, you can't do it. That's the point. That's why Jesus has brought them to this point. Out of love for the man, out of love for his disciples, he has gotten them to the point where they are wondering how can any person be saved? How can I be saved? Jesus looked at them and gave the answer. With man, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. It is a miracle that I am saved. It is a, an act of recreation. It is the same as God calling light out of darkness and raising the dead. That's what salvation is. It's an act of God. It's the power of God. Now, let's finish up with Peter. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. So, you know, you told this guy, Leave everything and follow you. That's what we did. We did leave everything and follow you. So, you know, good on us, right? And it's true. They did leave everything and follow him. And, and it's true that they had received eternal life and that they had forgiveness of sin. So, yeah, It's good. But Jesus here has more to teach. So if you're like Peter and you're here this morning and you're like, I have. I have given God my heart. I have given God my life. I've given up everything. I've left everything behind to follow him and there's no turning back for me. And I've I've lived it and I've walked it for years and decades, picking up my cross every day and following Christ. I've got eternal life. Good. Good. But Jesus has something else to say to you this morning. He says this, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. You can't compare what God has given you with what you've given up. That's what God wants you Christians to know. For those of you who have picked up your cross and followed Christ, don't compare what you have given up with what God has given you. That's why Philippians chapter 3 was our scripture reading today. I've suffered the loss of all things. I count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own, but a righteousness that comes from God. It's all rubbish. I can't compare what I gave up. The houses, the lands, the inheritance, the riches, the wealth. Who cares about that? That's garbage compared to what I have in Jesus Christ. I heard a really great illustration of this point. Imagine the young man on his wedding day getting ready to marry the girl of his dreams. Virtuous, beautiful. He's not thinking about what he has to give up in order to get married. He's just thinking about what he's going to gain on that wedding day. And that's the way it should be for you shouldn't be looking back and saying, oh, look at everything I gave up to be a Christian. No. Look at everything God has given you as a Christian. That's what you should be focused on. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. So many good verses. <laughs> All right. The first being last and the last being first. You can read about that in Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. And there's a parable that explains what the first being last and the last being first will mean. But I can't go into all of that now. So I just want to end with first Timothy chapter six verses seventeen through nineteen. Turn your Bibles to First Timothy six, seventeen through nineteen. Because I left you on the hook for a while. Is it okay for you to have a house? Is it okay for you to have a farm? Is it okay to own some property and to have some net worth or should you get rid of it? Well, 1 Timothy chapter 6 helps us with that. And here's the instruction that God gives for those who are rich in this present age. So if you have some wealth, here's what God wants you to do. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes On the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. The rich, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. This verse, meditate on that, do what that says, And you will be doing God's will if you have wealth. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the straightforward and piercing words of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would allow those words to be directed into each one of our hearts. That the Lord Jesus Christ could look at each one of us this morning as his spirit is present among us. To see what it is that holds our heart, where our allegiance lies, what is most precious and most valuable to us. And if there is anything in that place that is not you, Father, we pray that you would reveal that so that we might get rid of it and be glad to be rid of it so that we can have open hands to receive your amazing grace for our good and for your glory. Amen.